Welcome to Voice of the Musical. This is the 6th of April 2020, and if you're living in the UK, we're entering week three of lockdown. Hope you're all well and safe and happy. I've been spending this week working on a song for BBC Radio 4's The Now Show, which went out on Friday. Um, you can catch that song uh, and that episode on the BBC Sounds app or on iPlayer until about May the 4th, sung by Suze Kempner with guitar by Danny Short. Got a very special treat this episode. We are bringing you uh, an interview with Nathan Tyson, uh, who I met um, nearly 20 years ago uh, when I worked on a showcase of a musical by him and Chris Miller. It's a fantastic to get a chance to listen to Nathan's uh, experience and his development in the world of musical theatre. I think you're going to really enjoy this. Here it is. Voice of the Musical. Nathan Tyson, I want to welcome you to Voice of the Musical. Um, this is a really fantastic uh, treat for me because I've I've known you quite a long time, uh, and in the time since I've known you, you've been doing lots of extraordinary things, and I, I wanted to get into some of those. Um, because a lot of the uh, writers and fans of musical theatre over here will perhaps know your show, they will probably know your name, but they may not have uh, you know, heard from you directly. So I thought I'd take this opportunity just to, uh, um, to get to know you a little bit and, and you know, to hear about your experience uh, in the business of musical theatre. So welcome, Nathan. Thank you. Excited to be here, <laughs> virtually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So you're currently in New Jersey. Yes. T tell us about, because uh, I think you're from New York originally, do you want us to say a little bit about how you came to be writing musical theatre for a living? Sure. Uh, I, I was born in upstate New York, uh, in uh, Woodstock, New York, actually Kingston, because the town of Woodstock doesn't have a hospital. Um, my father was a minister um, at the, uh, the local church right in the heart of Woodstock, New York. Um, and he was a he ended up leaving the church to become a hospital chaplain and took the first job that was offered to him, which was in Salina, Kansas. So when I was three years old, I actually moved to Kansas um, and and grew up there, spent my formative years there um, and didn't leave until college. Um, my parents never thought that they were going to stay in Kansas, but there's this little jewel right in the middle of the state called Salina. It's actually like 45 minutes south of the geographic center of the United States. And this little town um, kind of had everything that I needed. Like it had this beautiful support of, of arts and music, a very strong community theater, a really strong high school program. Um, and so I still found the arts, even though people don't believe <laughs> that they're that they're there. You just have to look a little harder. Uh -huh. um, I also kind of grew up in a Von Trapp family. Um, my my father forced my family, I have an older brother, um, to perform at every church service. Um, you know, my dad playing the guitar, my mom playing the ukulele, and us singing four part harmony. Um, so the performance bug had bitten me at a very early age. Um, and I kind of thought that I was going to be a performer just because I didn't really know what other avenues were out there. Um, but in high school, I ended up doing a summer theater program uh, that 
for very strange reasons, started in Salina, Kansas. Mm. It was called Lovewell Institute for the Creative Art. And it's a program where they take 30 kids from all over the United States. And in three weeks, the kids write and then perform a full-length musical. Wow. And I went into this program thinking, well, I will be the lead of this show. I'm very <laughs> excited to be the lead of whatever we write. Not understanding that in order to be the lead, you've got to write the songs first. And I started writing songs. And two weeks into the process, I kind of look around and notice that I haven't written a character for myself. And I found out that it didn't matter, that I was much more interested in telling the story and telling other people's story. Um, and I ended up writing the, the finale of the piece. And I just remember standing on stage, surrounded by my peers. Everyone is singing this song. My body was covered with goosebumps. And I thought, this is the best feeling I've <laughs> ever felt. And I feel like I have been chasing that feeling now for the last 20, 20 years. Um, so I, uh, I continued through Lovewell. And Lovewell is still around, everyone. If you have any kid between the ages of 13 and 19, I think they have junior programs now, too. Um, uh, just go to lovewell.org. Um, and they still, they do them all over the country, all over the world now. And I've been blessed that when I have free time, uh, I've, I've run a lot of programs and I've written, okay. you know, 20 different musicals with, with, with young artists. Uh, so I still went to college. I went to college at Missouri State University and I got a musical theater performance degree. Um, but very quickly realized that I was not the, the most talented person um, as far as performance is concerned at that program and just started doubling down on my writing. Uh, my senior year, I ended up writing a full-length musical um, and I wore way too many hats. I directed it. I, um, um, I, I basically wrote the music. I had a buddy come in and, and orchestrate it. Um, and I should have let him compose it, but at that point, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and I previously, anyway, like, um, I worked with another person on it too, but, uh, I did write a full length musical in college. Um, and that led me to, uh, the NYU program at, at, uh, in New York city, there's mm -hmm. a graduate musical theater writing program. I think it's the only one in the world where you can get a master's degree in writing musicals. Um, kind of applied on a whim. I, I didn't know what else I was going to do um, and, and luckily got accepted. And that was in 1999. So I came right out of uh, undergrad and went right into grad school. And those two years were two of the best years of my entire life. Um, finally, I was surrounded by people that that wanted to do the same thing uh, that I wanted to do. And I was being taught by titans of the industry. Um, I mean, one of the people that, that really made me fall in love with musicals is William Finn. Sure. Um, and at day one, I sit down and Bill Finn is uh, one of our teachers. And I, I'm, in a lot of ways, I have a career because of Bill Finn and because of his support. Um, but, you know, I wasn't being taught by a bunch of failed or bitter actors or directors or writers these people were currently writing but also truly cared about our voice and what we were trying to say mm. um and i also met chris miller 
uh, day one of NYU. And as Chris likes to say, he saw me across the room and said, that is the guy I'm going to write musicals with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've been writing together now for 20 years. Wow. Um, so I, I can definitely talk more about that program. Um, the real joy of it, at least for me, was the, the first year. Um, not only are you really focusing on different song styles and structures, mm. but you're also learning how to be a good collaborator. So NYU selects 10 writers, 10 words people, and 10 composers. And every week you are uh, paired up with a different composer or words person and you work on a project. Um, I should also say this was 20 years ago, so maybe they do different things. <laughs> Uh, but this is what happened when I was there. Um, so, you know, week one, you, you work on a, a comedy song. Week two, you're writing a duet. You're doing an AABA. You're doing an opening number. You're working on a 10-minute musical. And every week, you have to work with someone else. And you have to learn how to create with another person, how to respect their creative vision and also their space. Yeah. Um, and I I loved it. I, I, um, I am a collaborative person at heart and i think that's because of what lovewell taught me um so much of of the writing in that in that um in lovewell was you know writing with a group so i i i don't love sitting alone in my room like i'm doing right now <laughs> in front of my computer trying to type words like my real joy is getting in a room sitting at the piano with somebody and just writing a song together and if I've got the good melody, that's great. If you've got the good hook and the good lyric, that's great. Let's just create together. Mm. Um, so really, um, you know, I, I think I excelled at NYU, but it was very clear in that first year um, who I wanted to work with. Because in the second year, you just pick one collaborator yeah. and you spend the entire second year working on your thesis. Um, and so at the end of year one, I selected Chris, Chris selected me, and we spent our second year working on a musical called The Burnt Part Boys, mm -hmm. which ended up being um, one of our first off-Broadway shows um, in New York City. Um, and so got out of grad school and immediately <laughs> took a day job. I worked as an office manager for many years. I then became a children's entertainer going around uh, <laughs> Uh, with a guitar and a, and a literal bag of bells and whistles and puppets and parachutes and sang for little kids all around uh, New York City. L little Maestros is this? This was this was Little Maestros. I worked for Little Maestros and then I took it on uh, took it solo and started doing my own thing. Um, but Little Maestros is yeah, it's definitely the first um, my first kids music uh, gig, mm. um, and and really did. I had a day job for 15 years. Like I've only been writing uh, without another job, writing prof professionally, as we call it. I mean, for, yeah. for five years. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I feel very blessed. Um, but it's, it's, been a, it's been a long journey. Of course. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. When, when you were um, writing the full-length musical in the, school, in the, in the program, yeah, um, did you did you suddenly realize that you were the person who was wanting to kind of write them all the songs? Yes, uh, I found a lot of people that were looking for a moment for themselves on stage, sure, and didn't know specifically how to to write it. And I just kind of squeezed myself into the room mm. and said, "I'll help." 
<laughs> how how can I help? Let me help you write a song. Um, is that what you're asking? Yeah, I'm just I'm just interested in if 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 that sense of you of you as a writer, you know, it sort of sounds like it happened quite organically. Um, and was it a surprise to find that not everybody else had that same desire to write? You know, that they were actually more interested in the performance. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and but then I just you know I kind of glommed onto the the two or three other people in the program that also really wanted to write songs. Sure. Um, and one of those guys is named Ryan McCall, and I still write music with him. Wow. Um, he's the 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 first person I ever wrote a song with. And uh, we still play in a band together. Oh, fantastic. Albeit now, every every member of the band lives in a different state. So, and I think now everyone's married and everyone has, almost everybody has a kid. <laughs> so if we're lucky, we play three times a year. Mm -hmm. But uh, I still make music with this guy. That's fantastic. Tell, tell us a little bit about, um, about Bill Finn, about his teaching style, because um, he's such a very specific... Uh, unique individual tell us about what that experience was like the tricky and kind of magical thing about bill finn is that all of his writing and everything that he uh really loves comes from it's all from the, his gut and from his heart yeah and it can be very tricky when you present a song and he'll just say i like it <laughs> i don't know why i like it but i like it or he'll give you the note, it doesn't work. I, I don't know why it doesn't work, but it doesn't work. And the crazy thing is, is he's always right. <laughs> always. He can just tell what, like, what, is, uh, what is working and what isn't working mm -hmm. in a song. Um, and you just have to kind of sometimes take that critique at face value uh, and then go back and work on it or you know, try to pick his brain separately. Um, he, I think he can smell when something isn't isn't true. Sure. He and and that's what I love. And yet, this man loves the English language. He loves rhyme, but he's one of those writers that I love. Like he is not overly clever. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's real joy and there's true craft in what he does. And yet. He's not one of those writers where, as I'm listening, I'm thinking about the writer that wrote the song. Sure. He's never waving a little flag saying, look how clever I was in this uh, moment. And that's, I think, the key to writing musical theater. Yeah. Uh, that staying true to your character, mm -hmm. but still ha knowing the tools of uh, rhyme and structure and storytelling that you can make your moment feel um, as as unique as possible. Uh yeah. Well, that's very interesting because it's something I see in your lyrics as well. Um, you know, is a is a desire not not to be flashy, not to draw attention, um, but to to use plain language to paint a character and to paint a situation. You, so I wonder if that um, that's a direct gift from Bill Finn. Absolutely, I, I believe that. I mean, that is my mo as far as approaching musical theater mm. um, writing and and lyrics. Um, I never want to draw attention to myself. So you, when you um, you rocked up at NYU and you, ha you had all this experience of different sorts of collaborations, were some of them easy? Were some of them difficult? And a, a follow-up question, were the easier ones the better ones? Or did sometimes you find um, a joy and, and a positivity in, in the difficult relationships and the difficult conversations? What... what really 
works for you as a collaborator? Lots of questions in there. <laughs> right. Um, I think I can be a little, especially 20 years ago, a little pushy as a collaborator mm. in that I really like to write in the same room with people and that can, that can terrify people. Mm. That I think a lot of writers uh, want it to be a, a very um, personal, quiet, safe space. And of course I try to still make it very safe and yet, if the whole idea is that we're going to collaborate and write a song together, I think that we should at least try to knock it out together. Sure. Um, so I would kind of put myself into people's um, collaborative spaces. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but I at least always tried. Because um, I find that the best stuff comes, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but when, when you are together. And not the entire song, but if mm. we can be in the same room and find the gem find the the thing or the key that unlocks the song whether it be the melody the hook the the first verse um and i'm sitting here with you and i understand that we both agree yes this is this is the good stuff <laughs> this is what we're going to expand upon then we can go off and we can you know we can do our own work and uh and chisel and refine what the song is um I would say that sometimes the the really success some some collaborations that were successful. I'm trying to think how to say this. Like uh, I appreciate pushback, and I think there have been a couple moments where like if I just drove the bus, yes, we got the song done, we hit the deadline, but it probably wasn't as cool as it could have been if it was a little rockier and, <laughs> and someone actually questioned a few of my ideas. Um, because I will always hit a deadline, and I, I think I learned that from Love Well too. You know, we know at the end of three weeks, not only have to write it, we have to put it on stage. So, and I just hate to let anybody down ever. So like I, if I have to drive the bus, we will do it. But the, I know that my ideas are not as good as, as uh, the ideas that we could, we could come up with together. And sometimes I think if you don't have that, that sort of agreement at the early stages, you can end up writing different songs, you know, not, and not actually realizing it until you come back together. You know, I will say this though. I, I get a lot of questions about um, how to collaborate and how to be a collaborator and how to how to, how to walk away with a, you know some sort of successful collaboration and and I and I truly believe that I think you only call a collaboration successful is if you can walk away with something right sure you, like if you just every time you get together you love the person you're having a great time but you're banging your head against the wall and you never <laughs> you always have to like be moving forward you have to like. Yeah. Find, find the key, find the gem, whatever. Um, but I will say that I am not saying go into a room and don't have any, and have, don't have prepared, mm. right? I think it's crucial that you have done some homework so you're bringing stuff to the table. Sure. Um, you know, I have a notebook. I have a, 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 a notes, you know, a notes app on my phone that has just like tons of ideas for song titles, rhymes that I like, lyrical ideas, just lines that I've heard, quotes, all of that, um, that I will go to um, whenever I feel stuck. And it, it will definitely bring me something. I will definitely do some sort of free write, um, especially if I know what the assignment is before I get in the room with someone, just so I have a couple pages of things if we get stuck. I won't bring it out immediately, you know? I'll just start mm -hmm. to talk and hopefully we'll together we'll figure out what we think the moment is what we think it should sound like, what we think could be a song title or a hook. Um, but if not, 
I don't ever want the process to stall. So then I'm happy to pull out my two sheets of me just kind of throwing up on the paper and, <laughs> and sharing it and saying, you know, here, here are my naked baby photos. Like, look at them and see if something inspires you. And then we can go from there. So, yeah, I don't feel like I'm totally quick on my feet. So I have to prepare a little bit in order to, to have something to fall back on. And the room goes quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that there were sort of philosophical differences between you and other people who were in, on that program in terms of what a musical should be? Or, or yeah, I would say that um, that has definitely happened in my life. It did not happen in, at NYU. Um, right. I think we were very, and I'm sure it has happened, but we um, had a, were very lucky in the in the 20 people that were selected in the cycle that I in. It seemed that everyone had a different voice and everyone was trying to do something different. And we all kind of uh, respected each other. Um, There, there wasn't that, (laughs) there wasn't that layman angle in the group (laughs) that said, this is how musicals are written and these are the rules and you have to do this. And listen, some of those rules are fantastic, but when you have to live and die by those rules, like you're going to write a cookie cutter uh, musical and luckily we didn't have that person i know that those people have gone through the program i know those people exist in the world um (laughs) but for me in those two years to not have that person uh was really really um helpful talking of of layman angle did you uh, then use the resource of the bmi workshop after you'd uh, graduated from nyu i personally didn't um but i highly recommend that program uh, to people, um, especially for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, NYU is very expensive and I assume it's quadrupled in price since the time Mm -hmm. I was there. Um, I am still paying off my loans from NYU. Um, do I think it was worth it? Absolutely. Uh, but I will also say that I, I believe of the, of the 20 people that were in our program, I think Chris and I, and maybe one or two other teams are still writing together other people are writing they just you know there's they they didn't find their their you know their husband or wife in collaboration you know (laughs) um so i know that we were lucky um so i say you know if if uh if financially you can't swing nyu uh bmi is a fantastic option because it is free it is f-r-e-e free um and what it gives you is, once again, uh, a group of like-minded people that want to write musicals that are passionate about it. You meet weekly. They give you weekly assignments. And you're finding collaborators. And I feel like a lot of people are looking for you know, like-minded people to write shows with. BMI mm. gives you all of that. Um, and once you go through the levels, listen, I, and I'm sure there are there are writers and fans of your podcast that that have done BMI that know better than me. So I'm this is just what I've heard. <laughs> um, you know, you get to the third level and you can stay as long as you want, and then it becomes a salon where you could just come in and and, and bring material. Um, you know, I do know that there is, uh, from what I've heard, there are speci- there are rules that are that are taught there, um, and I think you just have to like. I think it's good to learn the rules. And then it's, of course you learn the rules and then once you know them, then you're allowed to break them. Sure. So yeah. I see nothing wrong with, with saying we are, we are at, there's this space where, where people can create musical BMI seems like a great, like a great option. Um, my wife went through BMI and, and really loved it. 
We might talk talk a little bit about more about uh, about Kate later on, but uh, just sure. going back to um, going back to Chris. Uh, so you say he he locked eyes on you. He said that's that's my guy. So yeah, tell us it's about because what I you have remember. really long hair, Tim. I had this long <laughs> hair down on my shoulders. I still have dreams about putting it behind my ears. And, and he was short sighted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So tell us what what do you remember about those sort of that first uh, meeting and and when did you realize that this was the guy that you were going to write with? Chris and I, I think, were the two youngest people in our cycle. Um, we both had been put in the same NYU dorm, um, so we just started kind of like walking to school together every day. And you know, there it just happened. I think in the first week, I invited him to my apartment to to just hang out. And this was, you know, back in the days of CDs and I have like four or five zipped up cases of music. And Chris is like, can I go through your music collection? I said, absolutely. He sits there, he pages through it. And at the end of it, he's, he's silent. And I said, you know, what's the matter? Is everything okay? He just said, I own every single CD (laughs) that you own right down to the most obscure stuff. Um, wow. And one of the things we fell in love, like we both love um, f- folk rock from the 90s. Okay, yes. Indigo Girls, uh, Ani DeFranco, um, especially Ani DeFranco. Like I haven't, I haven't met a lot of dudes that, uh, that mm. really like loved what she was doing. And, um, and then we just started talking about our backgrounds. And his father is also a minister. He has a brother yeah. that is three years older than, than me, same excuse me, three years older than he is. I have the same. Uh, and we just, we came, we became friends before we became uh, collaborators. Um, and what's funny about the NYU program is you get to see, at least back, back when I was there, at the beginning of the year, you saw all of your assignments and who you were going to write with. Hmm. I wasn't going to write with Chris until the last assignment of the year. <laughs> and it was a pop song. Uh, and so, and yet Chris and I just had this feeling that we should be writing together. So by the time we got to the pop song assignment, we'd already written five songs together. <laughs> um, I, I love Chris Miller because there is, uh, I mean, much like Bill Finn, like everything that he does is about heart and it's from the gut. And he just doesn't sound like anybody else. Yeah. There are a lot of very talented composers that I call musical chameleons, where they can sit down and be like, all right, what do you want this to sound like? Oh, you want this to be a Kander and Ebb song? You want this to be a Green Day song? You want this to be a Sondheim song? And they can do it. And it's an unbelievable skill. And yet, sometimes that means that they lack their own sound. Mm. Uh, and I think like when you listen to a Chris Miller song, it always sounds like Chris Miller. Um, and, and that can be good or bad because we could apply for a job and, and, you know, we're not very good at making us a Miller and Tyson song sound anything else than what it actually is. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's okay because for when when people approach us for a gig, they know in some ways they kind of know what they're going to get. Um, and and I love that. I Miller's music is also um, groove based. There's yeah. you can never not pulse to his music. There's always something underneath that uh, 
that I that's almost tribal to yeah. to what he does, and I love that about his music too. Um, and I also love that he collaborates in the way that I collaborate, which is let's sit on a piano bench and let's write a song together. Well, of course, um, I say of course, it's not, <laughs> not of course to anybody uh, listening necessarily, but uh, in my heart, you know, that's when I met you, um, it was very much as uh, a unit um, when you came yeah. over for a, a, a festival of, of musical theatre and, uh, and I am indeed uh, a, a short extract from The Mysteries of Harris Burdick. And mm-hmm. so I got to, to I got, got the full Tyson Miller experience, um, and fell in love with your uh, your work from that from that moment on, and also with you guys because it was such a such a, a wonderful experience to, um, to hang out with you, you know, and um, yeah, um, and the other members of the cast, and then you were kind enough to bring me over to um, to NYU to do another workshop and, and showcase of the of the show. So I got a sort of double a double hit, <laughs> which was. Um, yeah, which was just wonderful, and um, you know, I remember thinking that, and we all did. You know, we had um, Nigel Richards and Sarah Ingram and, and the cast, and we were all going, "Wow, what is this? What is this stuff? Why haven't we heard it before?" And the reason we heard, hadn't heard it before is presumably you, you'd, I mean, you were very new at that because this is going back uh, nearly twenty years now. It must be one of the first things that you did. Yeah, yeah. Harris was one of the first projects that we did right out of grad school. Yeah. How did you hit upon that subject? It was a, that book was a gift to me um, when I graduated from high school. It was not a book that I came to as an early reader. Um, but of course, I knew the work of Chris Van Allsburg. Um, he did Jumanji, he did the Polar Express. Uh, but uh, The Mysteries of Harris Burdick, for those who don't know, is a collection of 15 disparate black and white pencil drawings. Uh and there is a title of each drawing and a caption. And it's up to the reader to make up the story. And they are mysterious and funny and dark and strange. And just some of the, uh, uh, so just some of the coolest drawings you've ever seen. I mean, for instance, there's, there's a shot of a, of a suburban street corner. It's kind of beautiful Victorian house that, uh, has lifted up about you know three feet off the ground and it looks like it's taking off like a rocket ship and the the title is called the house on maple street and the caption is it was a perfect liftoff it's up to the writer to make up the story and so talk about a beautiful prompt for a song um i just had this thought uh that it would make a, a fantastic song cycle. Let's just write a song for each of these, uh, for each of these pictures. Um, and so I shared it with Chris and Chris said, absolutely. And he might've actually known the book. And now I, now I, I don't remember, but uh, he said, let's do this. So, you know, we didn't have the rights and listen, all young and new writers out there, be very, very wary of falling in love with a project if you don't have the rights. Sure. <laughs> Never write more than, more than three, th- three songs. Um, cause you're just going to get your heart broken. Yeah. Uh, but in some ways it's always good to explore the material to see if you think you can write it. Uh, and then if you have the opportunity to approach the writer, which, uh, we did with, um, Chris Van Allsburg, then you have some material in your back pocket to say, this is what it would sound like. But, uh, um, you know, look for projects in the public domain, especially the beginning of your career. Yeah. Um, things that you don't have to get the rights for. So you can actually have a show. 
you can learn the process of writing a show. Uh, and then, you know, find some people that support your work that will pay for getting the rights to fancier titles. Um, but anyway, this we didn't have an agent at this point. Uh, we literally looked in the phone book. Uh, we knew Chris Van Allsburg lived in Rhode Island. Uh, we found a Van Allsburg and we sent him set tape of us singing three songs and a letter that said, we love your book, can we turn it into a musical? Wow. Uh, about a month later, we get a message on our home answering machine. Uh, Cause Chris and I also lived together for six years, y'all. Mm -hmm. um, and it is uh, Chris Van Allsburg's wife. And you can hear our tape playing in the background. <laughs> and you can hear her say, guys, we love these songs. Let's oh, talk. Wow. Mm. And so we gave him a call. And uh, and Chris gave us uh, the you know granted us the opportunity to adapt his book. Now the thing that Chris Van Allsburg didn't do, and I completely understand why, but unfortunately it ended up being the reason why the project fell apart, mm. was that he didn't give us um, oh uh, oh shoot I'm gonna forget the the name like uh, soul soul rights of the project right meaning Tim if you wanted to write a version of Mysteries of Harris Burdick the musical you could. Um, uh, but like with Tuck Everlasting, we have the, the, oh, we have the exclusive rights. We, we have the exclusive rights to do Tuck Everlasting, the musical. So sorry, Tim, you can't, you can't do it. Um, and I understand that because the, the whole spirit of the book is anyone should be able to write stories based on these beautiful drawings, mm. titles, and captions, right? Um, producers felt differently because they're very worried of, of competing, Mysteries of Harris Burdick musicals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was one of the reasons. Although, you know, he did grant us the use of all of his images. So the the couple productions and readings that we did, we ended up getting to use like beautiful images of the drawings um, as as backgrounds for for the show. Um, and then the other thing that happened with our with that show is we were really pushed into trying to make it a book musical. Sure. Um, there were a lot of song cycles floating around at that point, uh, songs from new world, uh, myths and hymns. And I think people were hungry for a narrative. Yeah. And you know, so we spent, you know, four years with director Joe Calarco, who also is the book writer, uh, trying to like put these pictures together and, and make a full story. And we did, and we did like three different versions of it and it was successful. But at the end of the day, every story that we told ended up being very, very sad. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a kid's book, yeah. for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? There should be real joy in it. And I do believe that we found the story that connects these drawings. Mm. Um, but I think that story might be a little too sad. And so I, I still dream at some point we're going to revisit this material. And I think when we do, uh, we'll go back to the original idea, which is what we pitched the, the Van Allsburgs, which is just let us write a song for each of these moments. We won't try to connect it. It'll be a song cycle. Yeah. Um, but it still has some of my favorite, favorite uh, songs that I've ever written um, with Chris. I still remember the sand as my body hit the shoreline. A lantern in my hand, what was left of my home. I could hear the wind calling, calling to assure me Some things must stay. 
So tell me about um, a show that did get on, uh, which was Tuck Everlasting. So that's your, uh, was this your next project after the after Harris Burdick with uh, Chris? There, no, there were several shows, uh, Fugitive Songs, which was a, a song cycle, yes. which uh, basically we had taken, um, we'd been hired to write a couple shows that fell apart. We had all of these, uh, well, fugitive songs, songs that didn't <laughs> have a home. And we thought, let's let's do a song cycle. Also, we never got to do the Mysteries of Harris Burdick song cycle, so we'll do this <laughs> one instead. Um, and so, so we did that show, and that ran off Broadway for a while. And uh, it was uh, super helpful for us to kind of like get our music out there. And um, that happened. And then a couple other projects fell apart. Uh, and and then after, I guess it was after the Burn Part Boys, we had the opportunity to uh to pitch a uh to a broadway producer um and and that broadway producer's name is beth williams and at that point she was working for a company called broadway across america oh yeah and she said come in and and pitch us your dream show like and then that was very exciting we we hadn't gone to that level yet you know um some that actually has money and 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 the final destination was was broadway um so Chris and I actually went back to a list that we had made when we first graduated from NYU. And it was the top 10 prod dream projects uh, that if we could get the rights, uh, this is something we'd want to do. And Harris Burdick was on that list, but actually number one on that list was Tuck Everlasting. Uh, both of us had read that book. It was required reading for us in uh, fourth grade. And that book changed my life. That book made me want to read more books. Uh, I was terrified of my own mortality and kind of still am. Um, and this book honestly deals with those questions. And uh, Natalie Babbitt is the person that wrote the book. And it's not very popular in the UK. Is, mm. is that true? Is well, that it's, true yeah, it's not well, know? it's not well known. Um, yeah. Know, it's not one of those. It's a very American story. You know, it takes place in New England in the 1900s. Um, but it was written by Natalie Babbitt because her eleven-year-old uh, child asked her what happens when you die, um, or what is death. You know, basically asked all the big questions that could make a parent's heart stop. Mm. And she realized that she didn't have the answers, and so she wrote this book. Uh, and so we pitched Tuck Everlasting to Broadway Across America and Beth Williams, and this is a, kind of a great story because the pitch went well. They loved the idea. Um, and we said, you know, go get the rights. <laughs> please, if you like this, please go get the rights. We don't have the money. Um, we don't yeah. have the clout to convince Natalie or anyone that uh, that we should do this. Um, there also at that point had been a movie adaptation of Tuck Everlasting uh, that Disney did that was not very successful. Um, and so we didn't even know if the rights were available. They said, okay, thanks guys. Nice meeting you. We'll see what we can do. That same night, Beth Williams, goes to have dinner uh, with another producer. Uh, this producer's name is Barry Bowen. And uh, Barry like produced like the original La Caja Full. Mm -hmm. um, he's a classic old school producer, great guy. Um, but it kind of stepped away from producing and had gone into teaching. Um, 
And he had met with Beth Williams and said, so I want to come back into producing. Um, and I just got the rights to this book. And he slides Tuck Everlasting across the table. <laughs> Same day. Incredible. And she said, that's crazy. Because uh, I know the guys that should write it. <laughs> now, Barry didn't, Barry didn't know us. So we didn't get the job immediately. We ended up having to uh, audition and write uh, spec songs, which I'm sure your probably, listeners probably know what that is. But I mean, that's basically the, the equivalent uh, of, of an audition for an actor, uh, for a writer. It's, you know, you have to write a handful of songs to say, this is how I would adapt the material. This is what yeah. my version of Tuck Everlasting would sound like. Um, so we just songs and we went and performed them uh, for, for Barry and Beth. And it took six months for them to decide. And I know other teams also applied, mm -hmm. uh, but they finally said, yes, um, we want to work with you. And we, we got the job. And so I, I'm really bad with dates. Chris <laughs> Miller is so much better when always tell me, but I think it took eight years wow. from the time we got the, got the gig to it opening on Broadway. Uh, but a uh, total dream come true. Mm. They, uh, they paired us with a director and they paired us with a book writer. Uh, Casey Nicolau is the, is the director mm -hmm. and Claudia Shear is the book writer, which I thought were actually both very, very smart choices. Um, the, the story itself, and I will be the first person to say I'm obsessed and I adore the story, but it can be a little, um, uh, to, to quote Claudia Shear, a little sweetsy. Uh, uh -huh. and, yes. And, uh, and there's also, there's, there's not really a joke in the story. Right. And <laughs> so like, how do you find, how do you make it, where do you find the laughs? How do you make it a big Broadway musical? Which also was, a uh, a challenge. Cause when we first pitched it, we pitched it as a 10 person musical. There's really only 10 people mm. in the show. Um, thinking that the producers would be very excited, you know, Oh, <laughs> basically allowed to write anything with more than 10 people in it at that point in our careers <laughs> um and they yeah. said no we we want an ensemble we want to open this up we want big production numbers you're like okay how do we do that well bringing on casey nicola was the best choice because casey is both a director and a choreographer and has mm. done numerous successful and amazing uh musical comedies um including book of mormon um uh, Drowsy Chaperone, Aladdin, Something Rotten. And actually, he got Book of Mormon while we were working on Tuck. Um, he's like, I don't know. It's like a South Park musical about Mormons. <laughs> we'll see. And of course, it ended up being just the most outrageous and amazing musical. But, um, uh, but Casey understands how to use an ensemble. He understands how to make a production number and how to earn it. And this was the first time that we had collaborated on a piece uh, where we had both the book writer and the director there from from the jump mm. and could, uh, could really shape the show together. Um, people ask us about, there's a ballet at the end of the show that spans about 60 years. Um, and people ask us, you know, where did you get this idea? Um, was it a song first and then you turn it into a ballet? And and to be totally honest, we always knew it was going to be a ballet. Um, there's this jump in time that the book does in the chapter where it just becomes the epilogue and you jump 60 years and you see what happens to each of the characters. Um, 
but we knew that we that that was not going to work on stage and we needed to find a way to kind of progress through the the life of Winnie Foster and her choices and so from the very first reading when we would hear the the piece out loud we would get to the the ballet and Casey Nicolau would read this uh monologue this narration that he wrote basically a giant mm-hmm. stage direction that ex- explained what the ballet was going to be um and even that narration made people cry. Like we knew it was going to be good. And the poor guy didn't get to stage it for, I think, three years. Finally, we were at a place <laughs> where we are going to have more than a 29-hour reading. We are going to put it on its feet. And that's one of the first things he staged. And he did the first like draft of it in a day because he knew what he wanted. He'd been imagining it for three years. It wasn't a – you know, sometimes you don't bring a director on until – You've done several readings. Mm. Um, so that was a joy because he, he was already aware of how things were going to transition throughout the show and how it was going to move. He's fast. He's smart. Um, and I think we also figured out a great way to use the ensemble mm. so that they weren't just like merry villa- villagers singing about the weather. Sure. <laughs> um, we realized that they, would, they represented time. And they represented kind of the, the the backstory or the life that the Tucks have lived. If, if people don't know the story of Tuck Everlasting, it's about an eleven year old girl who finds a family in the woods that are immortal. They drank from a spring, and they've been now living for a hundred years, um, but they don't age, so they've been they've been hiding. Um, and then this little girl is given the opportunity to drink from the spring. And it's all about her choice and whether or not she's going to um, drink from the spring and have an immortal life with the tux or embrace her own mortality. Mm. Um, But what the book doesn't do smartly, I think, is talk about what in the hell the tux have been doing for these last 80 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that these first conversations we had were about that. Like, where did Miles go? He's got this huge chip on his shoulder. Um, you know, if if you were immortal, like, I mean, was he a pirate? Did he <laughs> did he gamble? Um, how many kids does he have? You know, and he had so much fun uh, going into each of their backstories. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of that stuff got cut. But I think what it did give us is very, very three dimensional characters. Um, that uh you know there are traces of all of that that are still in in the show and do you think with um with tuck everlasting and uh and actually fugitive songs as well it sounds like you really had a chance to channel your love of folk rock because there's uh um that sort of great contemporary sound that you have in uh in fugitive songs and then uh, i guess it's a a kind of slightly more ancient sort of looking back uh sense of the score in tuck everlasting was was that a conscious choice they're very American shows, aren't they? Uh, I mean, only that, it just saying that it, it, it was absolutely our, our musical wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, and that the world of the show seemed like it could be a Miller and Tyson musical. Uh, and, you know, Chris, I know, pulled a lot from Copeland in that. He, he looked a lot of like old Irish uh, folk songs and, of course, American music and, and church music. Yeah. Um, I... I think when when you are writing a musical and especially adapting a musical, one of the first things you have to ask yourself as a writer is why is it a musical Mm. and why are they singing? Right. (laughs) Because if you don't earn that moment, it it can be very cringeworthy and embarrassing and why a lot of people don't like this art form. 
Yeah. Um, and there has to be a reason. And Top, I think, deserves to be a musical because at the heart of it, there is this music box. Mm. There is this tune that uh, that May, the the matriarch of the Tux, um, she's had this music box for 100 years. Whenever she's nervous, she plays this music box, which means over 100 years, people have heard this, this tune floating through the mm. woods. And so we knew that one of the first things we had to write was the music box theme. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Chris went away and, and brought in the theme. We used to have a full lyric um, for the music box um, mm. that ended up, we ended up never really using except for a small snippet uh, in, a, in a flashback. Paw um, proposes to May and he uses the melody of the music box as his, as his wedding, his marriage proposal to her. Um, but uh I just remember that that was one of the first things we write, we wrote, and we didn't share that actually. We wrote that when we were writing spec songs, um, and we didn't share that one. That was that one was more for us. So we knew that was going to be the glue that was going to kind of connect us through the rest of the piece. And I guess I bring that up because to me that that melody is encapsulates like all of the all of what you're talking about this Americana, um, this kind of like folk pop world. Um, uh, but it's it's where the rest of the show uh, grew from. Spent the bad part of my twenties in a Photoshop in Utah, killing time. Cutting glossy three by fives, providing photo evidence of other people's lives. Spent the last ounce of my patience putting other lives in focus, going mad. Customers keep coming in, reminding me of places that I have never been. So, a very different musical sound and, and not a Chris Miller show. Tell us about Amelie and how you came to be working on the on that show. Um, I um, let's see how how does this work. So, Dan Massey is the composer of Amelie, and he also went through the NYU program. Uh, we, he's a, a couple years older than me, so we, we never met. Um, but I was first introduced to Dan through a CD that he sent to the head of the NYU department, um, of his band called Hem, H-E-M. And he just said, Hey, you know, things are going well. I, I just made a record. Please check it out. Um, I was the office assistant at that time with, uh, Jen, to Jen Toxvig, by yes. the way, <laughs> another Brit, another amazing writer, also yeah. do our cycle. One of my Absolutely. closest friends, um, we worked at the, at the office together and I would open up the mail and we got that CD and I immediately took that CD and, uh, and burned it onto my own computer <laughs> so I could have it and became a huge fan of Dan and his work. Um, and if, if people don't know him, check it out. I think they now have five records. Um, the first record, the one that really hit home for me is, is a record called Rabbit Songs, like the bunny, Rabbit Songs. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll listen to it, you're like, oh, there's Amelie. Like, that's that's the sound of Amelie. He also, like like Chris, has a, you know, he has a very specific sound, what he, what he yeah. wants to do. Um, I was uh, I was at a party and I was talking to a person who said, I'm going to give Dan Massey his first Broadway musical. I said, that's amazing. He said, yeah, we just got the rights to Amelie. I said, whoa, what a great <laughs> idea. Um, listen, if Dan ever needs a collaborator, 
please let me know because I would love to work on that project and would love to work with Dan. Uh, a year goes by, I hear nothing. I then get a call saying, so Dan is interested in possibly bringing on uh, an additional lyricist to the show. Mm. Uh, Dan is an amazing lyricist, primarily writes pop songs. Um, uh -huh. So he just wanted a little help, you know, kind of like living in the world of, of musical theater and, uh, and making the songs work a little bit more with story and all of that. And so I, uh, I went and auditioned basically for Dan. I realized that he was a 10 minute bike ride away from me in Brooklyn, which was great. And uh, I went and what I loved about Dan is the first thing he did was like, come here. And he patted the, the seat on his piano bench. And I sat down with him and we wrote a song. Wow. And then we wrote a couple more songs. And I know that he also um, interviewed other writers. Um, but a couple weeks later, I got the call saying he would like to, to write with you. And, uh, and that was uh, a pure joy. And, you know, I, I, right at the beginning, like I was, uh, I was a little starstruck and couldn't believe that I was writing with, uh, someone that I respected so much, but, uh, but now, you know, now we're, we're, we're just the best of friends and I, I really value that collaboration. Um, and I will say that, you know, like Chris and I both sleep around as far as writing musicals. Um, <laughs> you kind of have to, I think, because it takes so long for these things to happen that you have to have four or five irons in the fire at the same time. Um, and I think if Chris and I were writing four or five shows together, instead of the two shows that we were writing together, <laughs> we might kill each other. Uh, so, you know, it's totally, it's, it's totally okay that, you know, we all um, write with other people, but um, the real difference between Chris and, and Dan, as, as far as songwriting is concerned, is that I would say 90% of the stuff I write with Chris is uh, words first. Mm where 90% of the material I write with Dan is music first. That's interesting. Um, and for me, it's a I feel like I'm using a different side of my brain to, to write these songs. So in some ways, I'm not even cheating. Mm -hmm. um, uh, with Dan, he gives me the puzzle. Yeah. Right? Like he, know, he knows the, the amount of syllables. He actually even knows where the rhymes want to fall. Sure. And then it's just solving, solving the, pro the puzzle. Where with Chris, um, I get to build the puzzle. Yeah. And there's some beautiful freedom in that, but also it can be more difficult because I'm trying to like not only write it, but also find the structure. Mm. Um, I had uh, just an absolute blast writing the show with Dan. I, Amelie was, uh, you know, I, I watched that movie in college. It was a mm -hmm. date movie. <laughs> um, and it blew me away. I mean, maybe one of the first movies I saw with subtitles. Um, yeah. And I've always loved it. And, you know, once again, you have to ask that question, should Amelie be a musical? Um, and, you know, this is someone that doesn't know how to connect to the outside world and mm. uh, uh, escapes into her own imagination. And if that imagination doesn't sing, <laughs> then <laughs> I don't know what does. Yeah. So we thought that that absolutely, yes, um, we, sh we should be able to, to make this a legitimate musical. Um, but it was a beast. It was a real challenge. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, and I don't think we got it right, even on Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, there is a little bit of redemption because after Broadway, we got to continue working on it and tweaking it. And, you know, there's now this production that, that happening in the UK and will hopefully happen again. Yes. Um, where I think like we have finally figured out the beast that is Amelie the Musical. Um, and I'm absolutely so proud of it so please add any specific questions you want to ask about it 
happy to. Yeah, well, I was I was wondering about that process of uh, first production to second production, and of course the the, the production of the other other palace, which is um, the one you're talking about, uh, has yeah. been very well recognised and very well received. And uh, had we <laughs> had the Olivier Awards gone ahead this year, um, yeah, it was going to be. Uh, represented um, well hopefully it will, it will they will still take place in in some form yeah. but um, what was it that you knew you had to fix and how did you fix it between New York and the next production some of it were uh, there were things that we knew we wanted to fix uh, and then there were other things that uh, Michael the director asked if we could if we could tweak or change and that he he brought some things to light that we didn't realize were already in the in the work so um one of the things that we were convinced uh needed to happen on broadway was that it needed to be under 90 minutes it needed mm -hmm. to be a one-act musical and so many of the changes that we put in going to broadway were just about cuts and it was about sure. pacing and it seemed like the more and more that we did that, the less like Amelie it felt. It felt like this kind of like gunshot that was you just like zoom, zoom through the show and you don't let it breathe. And mm. it doesn't feel French. It doesn't feel European. It doesn't feel uh, like like a, a, a delicate story that we're going to be, mm. be able to take our time and 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 zoom in on something weird and quirky and allow it to just like sit there. And allow people to react to it and then move on to the next moment. So a lot of it was was putting in breath um, and also putting in an intermission. Mm -hmm. uh, we we added a, a break, an interval, which was super helpful. Um, we had also cut an opening number that uh, our first out of town tryout was at Berkeley Repertory Theater, and uh, we had this opening number called uh, Blue Fly, which was basically I'm. Mean, it, it it is the beginning of the movie um, where the narration of following this blue fly through the streets of Montmartre and uh, kind of giving us some like strange factoids about characters in the show and yeah. about people um, distancing themselves, um, not connecting to the outside world, leading to uh, the birth of, of Amelie. Um, and it the song was successful, but I feel like we never really figured out the, the the staging of it at Berkeley. And when we were looking for moments to cut, it just seemed like that was a good song to cut uh, going into Broadway. And I think it was the wrong choice mm. because you don't establish how the story is being told. Sure. You don't establish these narrators who are then going to help us through the rest of the show mm. um, and are going to narrate through the rest of the show. Uh, and so it's, I think, you know, even though it takes about five minutes to get there, it, it's, it's a worthy five minutes because it, it, it says it, it is a perfect introduction to like how the world of the piece is going to operate. Sure. And um, that information is so vital for the successful otherwise yeah, of a show for the, the audience to know what they're going to be watching and how they're going to be watching it. Right. Um, and then the other the other big breakthrough, and the, I think the hardest part of the show, is what we call the childhood sequence. Mm -hmm. um, that childhood sequence in the film is maybe the most glorious 18 minutes uh, ever <laughs> put onto film. Uh, it is so much fun, and you have to believe me when I say Dan and I wrote a song for every single moment of the childhood <laughs> sequence. Um, and yet, what we learned is although it's all fantastic, it's not what the audience is really truly interested in 
when it becomes a musical. They are waiting for Amelie to appear. Sure. Um, and it, so our childhood sequence went from 20 minutes to 12 minutes to, and now I believe it's eight minutes long, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was just finding like what was the most exciting moments to keep that could, that could propel us into adult Amelie. Um, and, you know, we had an amazing actor playing young Amelie on Broadway and also all of the out of town projects. Um, but she, I, and this was in the writing, like in some ways, like she almost became like a little too precocious and like right, a little yeah. too, a little too cutesy. Yeah. Um, and so what we learned, and this, this happened both in the German production before the UK production and then also the UK production. And I think they both had the idea separately from one another, both directors was let's remove the little girl and let's make that little girl a puppet. Right. Yeah. And it changed everything, Tim. Mm. It just changed everything. So you, you, you get a couple things if you make it a puppet. First of all, the puppet was kind of expressionless, right? Mm. We're not talking an Avenue Q Sesame Street puppet. We're talking like a kind of a wooden marionette puppet without the strings. Yeah. That can be manipulated by old Amelie. So first of all, old Amelie can be in the scenes. So the actor, so the audience waiting to see the star get the star very quickly in the show. We can see the star looking at this memory and kind of explaining to the audience, see, this is why I don't know how to connect to people. This Mm. is why I am the person that I am. And you get this expressionless puppet, which was the genius of the film itself, right? That little girl like does nothing in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all like the story is told through narration. So you kind of get all of that, um, but you allow Amelie to connect to it. Um, and all of a sudden, the childhood sequence worked in a way that it had never worked before. And yet we hardly changed any of the text. We just kind of, once again, trimmed down each of the each of the moments. Of that That's journey. so interesting because you, you, you sort of listen to the Broadway cast recording. You think, oh, is, is this Annie? Is this Matilda? This is a really strong yes. <laughs> young person at the center of all this. And uh, what room does that leave for, uh, for, the, for the older actress? And um, right. such a privilege to, to get, well, not privilege, obviously, it's a, you, you, <laughs> you've earned it through, through talent and, and, and hard work. But that, that opportunity of, of getting to do a second production, you learn so much, don't you? I think that. Absolutely. We'd also written a handful of songs right at the end of the process on Broadway, and we just didn't have the time to to put them in. Uh, one of one of the songs that I'm really proud of uh, is called "The Sound of Going Round in Circles," um, which is the first song that Old Amelie sings right after the childhood sequence, and we we finally land at the Two in Mills Cafe. Um, and it's a song where she is working at the cafe and she sings a little bit of gossip about each of the people in the, the Two Inmills Cafe. Mm-hmm. And on Broadway, it is a scene. Uh, we had written it as a song. We said, can we please put it in? And then everyone just got cold feet and got worried and said, we, we can't put this song in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the scene does, does it and it totally works. But the song is just better. And yeah. the song puts it in the mouth of Amelie instead of um, coming out of the out of the different characters, and so you know we gave this to uh, to the the European productions, and uh, everyone jumped on it and said, "I think this will be successful." And it was so great to to sit in the audience and see it, and and realize that we were right, <laughs> <laughs> and that it should be in the show, yeah. and 
and it, what it accomplishes in three minutes is pretty is is pretty spectacular. I think. Yeah, it's frustrating. Sometimes you, you sometimes you know you're right, but the production is just too far down the the the, the road. You know, it's just like yes, oh, oh yeah. But you've had a chance to go and do a new recording, I gather. Yes. In fact, I just got first mixes uh, yesterday. How fantastic! You went to Abbey, Abbey Road. Well, we recorded. We did not record at Abbey Road. Um, we record. I would have to look it up. Um, it's a. It's an old church, and it. It was a perfect space um, because we had to have like three big rooms. Like we couldn't isolate anybody because they're both playing and singing at the same time. Oh, and if people haven't seen this production of Amelie, the other big change is it is an actor musician production. So all of the actors play uh, are the orchestra, um, mm-hmm. which means the arrangements uh, were tweaked and are glorious. And, you know, the blind beggar is actually playing the accordion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it, it's very accordion heavy in a way that like the show should be. Yes. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, we had to find a space where, where we could record everyone. And, you know, they've been though, that group of actor musicians have been playing together for nine months. And yes. they're so good. Um, we recorded that entire record in a day and we did wow. 20 tracks. Um and I don't think we ever did a track more than three times because mm. they're just, you know, they're, they're that tight, which is exciting. Um, but I did get to go to Abbey Road Studios because the producer of the record, Sean Flavin, uh, who runs Concord Theatricals, uh, was actually doing a record at Abbey Road the next day. Uh-huh. And I just said, uh, do you mind if I add another day to my flight and, <laughs> and hang out? So, yeah, I got to, I got to go to um, Abbey Road and that was... A dream come true. Yeah. They say times are hard for dreamers, but they won't be hard for me. I've saved up everything I know to take that step beyond the lawn. Keep walking till I see the station. Time is flying, certainly for, for for me. But I just, uh, if I could just ask a few quick questions, you had um, you, you've been the recipient of uh, a couple of very prestigious awards, the um, the Clayban and the Fred Ebb and, and others, others I believe too. What what difference did they uh, did they make to you in terms of your career, in terms of your development? I mean, both of those um, prizes, both the Ebb and the Clayban, um, come with large cash prizes. Mm-hmm. The Clayban is a hundred thousand dollars. And the ebb is fifty thousand um, dollars. So it it gave me. Uh, I mean, I that's when when I quit my job. I'd like to say I quit my job because I had my first Broadway musical. Um, <laughs> but no, I quit my job because I won that prize, and I was able yeah. to finally kind of like focus and uh, and take the jump and 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 yeah. risk it. Um, so it's it, it, it truly life changing, and mm. the fact that Ed Cleveland uh you know with 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 chorus line um and like this is what he knew he he, you know he put it in his will like he knew that he wanted to do this and he doesn't Mm. just give one prize he gives two prizes every year Mm. um both for a lyricist and a book writer so that's two hundred thousand dollars every year um and it also shows you that like you know you can't make a living but you can make a killing in the musical theater business you know uh chorus line you only need one show (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, I look forward to hopefully someday writing that show. Um, and and the ad the same, you know, it's it's just beautiful that that's what they what they decided to do. Um, I will say that I applied for um, both. Uh, we applied for the ad every year until we got it, which I think was five or six years, and then I applied for the Kleban for ten years uh, wow. until I until I finally won. So mm. and um, you're also married to. A lyricist, um, Kate Kerrigan. Yep. Um, how, how does how does that work in terms of professional <laughs> rivalry cohabitation? Do you get on? Do you do you write together? We actually, I think, because of the uh, COVID nineteen virus, we've decided. You know what? <laughs> we are the collaborators that we see daily, so let's just write something <laughs> together. Um, before that, though, no. Um, Kate and I moved to New York at the same time, but we didn't meet each other for 10 years. Um, and we actually, you know, we knew of each other and each other's work, but we didn't meet until we went up to a writer's retreat in California of all places. Um, and we were both in other relationships at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, about a year later, we were both single and we went on a date and, and that was it. And uh, it has been just the best uh, decision uh, I ever made was to ask her to marry me, and uh, yeah. she's uh, a fantastic <laughs> partner. And and I, for the first time, get to be the crazy person in the relationship, which is wonderful. <laughs> she's so sane and she's so loving. And um, you know what we decided was I, I did make her do a love well actually to bring mm -hmm. this back full mm -hmm. circle. And I made Chris Miller do a love well too, and oh, Chris great. did several. Just because I, I was just like, this is who I am as an artist. This is where I came from. So I think you should do one of these. Um, and so Kate and I did uh, work on One Love Well together. Um, we were inspired by the musical Wicked. And with these 30 kids, we wrote a, uh, uh, an origin story of the Little Red Riding Hood. It was called oh, The Roots of Red. And it was awesome. Uh, <laughs> and so I did that with Kate. Um, but, you know, the idea is, as I said before, it takes so long for these things to happen. You never know if you're going to make any money that it's important for us to have as many horses in the race as possible. Of course. Uh, and so that's why we haven't written together. It's like if we both write five shows, that means we have 10 shows and maybe one of them will actually get produced and make some money. <laughs> um, what's lovely is, as far as sharing a writing space is that we're both words people. Um, she writes a lot of book and 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 and. I think she'd say she's a book writer first, but of course she writes fantastic lyrics. I write mm. primarily lyrics, but for the last couple of projects I've been writing book. But that means that we're very quiet writers. So mm. we can sit in the same room and we can put our collaborators' music in our in our headphones and we can write and not bug each other. Mm. Uh, so so that's that's been no problem at all. Um, but uh, having said all of that, yeah, Kate and I finally had this idea for a project and, and we uh, we just sent off a treatment and so hopefully it's going to work out and I can give you an update to I can update to your listeners yes, <laughs> with hopefully please. some good news. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you and Chris have anything on the blocks at the moment? Yeah, we have a new show. We have two new shows, actually. Uh, one of them is an adaptation of a Willa Cather short story. Uh, Willa Cather wrote about... Um, uh, the the Midwest, primarily Nebraska in the 1900s. Mm -hmm. um, talk about our wheelhouse once again. Uh, <laughs> but she wrote this short story called um, Eric Hermanson's Soul. And we were commissioned by Playwrights Horizons in New York and Theater Works Silicon Valley in California uh, to, to write a musical. So we are in the middle of that. We've done 
uh, I think we're on like the fifth draft of that show. Um, and I think it might be an actor muso show, or at least a handful of the of the actors will be musicians because it is a show about uh, musicians. And it's about music and it's about church. And uh, it's, I think, one of the most beautiful things we've ever written. And I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, so that is in the middle of development and with everything that's happening in the world to our industry, Lord knows when it's going to see a stage. <laughs> Uh, but hopefully, hopefully soon. Um, we the show is called Revival, um, mm -hmm. but it's based on the short story. Uh, and then we were also just commissioned to write a musical specifically for high school students. And so we did this crazy B movie take of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh uh, yes. And it takes place uh, uh, on the day that Area Fifty One is declassified and mm -hmm. turned into a uh, like a. Uh, family attraction and uh it is called dreamland and uh it is the craziest silliest wildest thing we have ever written uh and we, we premiered it at a thespian conference which is a uh, uh, it's where high school theater kids from all over the world get together and share the productions they've done over here um it's called the international thespian society um we premiered it there we then had a, a world premiere production at my alma mater, Salina South uh, High School, uh, directed by my original drama teacher, Kate Lindsay, and it was amazing. Uh, now, we were supposed to record a cast album this spring, but clearly we're not going into a studio, which is mm. heartbreaking. Um, but I, you know, as soon as we can get into a studio, we're going to re record it with some fancy singers. Um, but the project, the piece now is is uh, available for licensing. Oh, great. So any listeners that are looking for a show uh, for your high school to do, um, it's got everything you need. It, it can be a cast as uh, of anywhere from 25 to 60. A ton of ca characters, each has a song, um, lots of female roles. Uh, of course, it's like based on the bard. So there's an educational mm -hmm. component anyway, and it's just really silly and the kids you know, <laughs> enjoy being aliens. That's for sure. Oh, well, I'll, uh, I'll put the links in the show notes as well. So people can, uh, can click through and find Great. out more about that. So Nathan Tyson, this has been absolutely fascinating and a, and a lovely chance to talk to you uh, once again in these strange times. Thank you so much for being a guest on Voice of the Musical. My pleasure. Take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.